0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: It is a real pleasure to have my friend Rob Finley join me today uh, to talk about his book, Beyond the Building, the Commercial Real Estate Industry, Data, Technology, and a whole lot of other things. Um, Rob, let me do a quick intro, and then we will dive in to our discussion. Uh, Rob Finley grew up in a commercial real estate family. His father and grandfather were both in the business, and as it happens in many small family businesses, his he, his brother, and his mom all gravitated towards commercial real estate. By the time Rob was 25, uh, he'd held nearly every job in commercial real estate. He'd leased it. He'd sold it. He'd managed it. He'd developed it. He'd been an on-site superintendent for in concrete. He'd financed it. There aren't a lot of things in the industry that Rob hasn't done at some point. Rob has spent more than two decades bridging the gap between innovation and technology to push the boundaries of commercial real estate. And we'll get into some details about those moves in his career uh, in a moment. He has a unique and longstanding position in the industry that allows him to observe the best TRE operators and entrepreneurs and understands what makes them successful and also what doesn't work. Rob formed 30 Capital in 2019, which is a prop tech incubator and accelerator, which currently is invested in 10 technology platforms. Uh, Rob, you start beyond the building stating that the book is for commercial real estate operators and investors, and you state, quote, if you don't look beyond the building, you're going to get left behind. How and why?
0: Well, first, Willie, you know, I've known you for a while and, uh, Always, yeah, we've always had fun skiing and and uh enjoying time with each other. But I'll tell you, I'm really humbled and honored to be here today. So this is uh for me, this is this is such a big deal. So first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, as as we talk about beyond the building and and if you're not paying attention to what's going on, you're gonna be left behind. It really is all about focusing and being aware, taking the inputs around you and making sure that you can process and be open to those inputs so that you aren't left behind, that you're not going to be out of business. Um, I think they you look at everybody right now, they're struggling with either, you know, something that's going on in the real estate market, and they're focused on it. And they've got to be so micro-focused that sometimes they forget some of the opportunities around them. So...
1: Let's take that and back up a little bit to when you were at Deutsche Bank. And you're at Deutsche Bank. You've uh, you, you'd originated a loan when you were at Credit Suisse. Um, it had it was a loan that needed to be defeased. Your client from Credit Suisse calls you at DB and is super frustrated and says, "I don't understand how to defease it. How the process works, and there's no transparency to actual defeasance." Uh, and because of that call and because of the frustration you sense with your customer, you said. There's a business to be built around defeasance. Um, For a moment, a lot of us have ideas about things we see in the marketplace that says, oh, if I had all the time in the world and all the money in the world, I'd jump out and go solve that problem. It's, you know, it's the kind of entrepreneur that sits to some degree in everybody, but very few people actually have the wherewithal to say, I'm going to drop a good job at Deutsche Bank and jump out and go do it. Take us back to that moment when you're sitting at, you know, your second job on Wall Street. You've been successful. You know you've got a good career in front of you if you just sit where you are. What was it that said to you, I've got to jump out of an investment bank and go follow this opportunity?
0: Well, first of all, just for, for clarification, it was my third. You know, I started with Lehman Brothers, went to Credit Suisse, and then I was with Deutsche Bank. And, and quite frankly, you know, and, and you and I have talked about this before, right, And in, in part of the book don't have a graduate degree. I, you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I, you know, and, and I, I had an undergraduate degree and I realized that, you know, the, the growth prospects for me in that kind of work environment just wasn't, it just wasn't there. And quite frankly, not being in a, in a family with commercial real estate owners and operators, as well as sort of entrepreneurs, it's really hard to work for somebody. And so picture this in 99, 29 years old, you know, I, I, think i'm the smartest guy in the world i shouldn't be working for anybody you know and i get this call and yeah there's a time where you say hey you know what am i going to go and do this and i think sometimes being young maybe a little naive um you know maybe not thinking about all the risks it's it's the time to do it and that's what happened i I felt like at this point i needed to do it and it was something it, it was something that was just so in me that it 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 I had to do it. I had to just say, forget it. I'm going to risk everything. I'm going to put my family's life in jeopardy. I, I mortgaged the house, you know, mortgaged the cars, got rid of my 401k. I did all of this stuff just so I can try to start this business. Um, and yep, very fortunate. It worked out.
1: Well, yeah, it worked out. Where the where the uh, where the slogan
0: uh, defies with ease come from, Rob? So it, it, we wanted to have some fun, and and there's. There's some debate on on who takes credit for it. So, you know, I go from everybody, from my brother who's also in, in commercial real estate, um, some of the people that I was working with, but we were trying to have some fun with this, right? Because it's defeasance. Nobody knows what it is. Everybody knows it's this complex process, or this was in 2000. And so we were throwing around slogans like, we make it defeasy or things like that. And then finally somebody came up in the room there was probably a few peers involved in this, but it was basically just a, why not just make it simple? Defeas with ease. And that was it. And it sort of stuck. The hard part about it, though, was we actually, to this day, people know us and and as either Defeas with ease or commercial Defeas. Because the actual legal name of the company is actually commercial Defeas. Because I didn't think I could go and sell defeasance services on Wall Street to these big shops with a company called Defeas with ease. So Defeas with ease became our slogan. But I've been to a conference and people are like, oh, you know, your commercial defeasance, oh, you know what? Actually, I I really like using those defeasance with these guys. And so we just turn around and say, yeah, well, you should. They're really good. You should keep on using them. So you sold commercial
1: defeasance to Summit Partners. I, I find it interesting that you sold it to a late stage venture capital firm and not, if you will, an industry player who could leverage off of the client base that you had on using the technology, as as you were thinking about either recapitalizing the company, continuing to grow the company on your own or selling it, why did you end up selling it to a venture capital firm rather than an industry player?
0: So I, I think the first thing's first, right, is it's, you know, think about this once again. Now at this point, right, I've been in this business, I'm, I'm 35, 36 years old, every bit of money, every bit of my life, my being, Everything I had was that business. I traveled 400 hours a year on planes. I was constantly involved. And and when your sole asset is this one thing, you start to get nervous. Now, I've also been very fortunate that I do look at other things and other other signs. I'm not just focused on the defusence world, but starting to just see this, this business ramp and ramp and ramp, seeing some trends in the market where lending might be a little bit more open. Some deals might be getting done that are a little more aggressive. You start to look back and, and say, geez, this is sort of reminiscent of of a of an overblown market. Maybe I should put some chips off the off the table. Maybe I should take some off. So went out and in, once again, and you know, just not knowing, hired basically was was one step up from a business broker, right? So, yeah, you, know, you go to these these guys and yeah, you know, I, I didn't even think about going to like a Goldman Sachs or you know, one of these big shops. I went to this this business broker and said, Hey, can you help me sell my business? He basically pitched it out to a bunch of people. Ultimately, you know, there were private equity firms. And I think Summit looked at this as an opportunity to take a foundation business that was rapid growth, because Summit was into rapid growth and and perhaps build off on it, use their their financial infrastructure and their ability to create alpha. And take this business and grow it to the next level and interestingly your
1: timing was you know impeccable as it relates to having done that sale in 2006 and you turn around and 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 after the gfc go back and uh invest back in commercial defeasance uh buy 50 percent of it and then that really is sort of the 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 cornerstone investment that then left, led to 30 capital um In that interim period, Rob, you went sort of back to hard assets. Uh, You did a bunch in the tax credit space and created tax credit asset management. You invested in a bunch of multifamily assets Um, after the GFC where values had come down significantly. Um, what, What was it that got you to, if you will, go back? I mean, do you think if Summit, if you hadn't been able to buy commercial defeasance back for the discount it was from Summit, do you think you would have gone back to the technology side or stayed on the hard asset side?
0: I, probably both. I, I mean, I you know, quite frankly, Willie, I think the the ultimate is is combining the two, right? I mean, that's that's really the way we are in our business right now. Is I think one of the reasons why we've been successful is we are real estate practitioners. We understand hard assets, and so the technology that we develop and the technology that we invest in supports commercial real estate owners and is used with um, the the business that. You know, so in, in two thousand and eight when I started TCAM, Tax Credit Asset Management, um, it was because the market there was fractured. If you remember back in that time, the syndicator market where they would buy these tax credits, these low-income housing tax credits, at a certain point, aggregate them and sell them off, well, that market was fractured because they get paid up front and then rely on the asset management over a period of time. And so when that market, when the, when the tax credits were being sold for much less than a dollar and these these syndicators were starting to be fractured that's where I saw it as an opportunity to do some financial engineering to not only get into the position to uh, acquire large portfolios uh, of these 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 structured products but also the hard assets and that's what started that and that that became part of the foundation but buying those type of assets along with what we were buying in 2009, 2010, the hard asset is just, it's a, it's a great place to be, right? Everybody loves hard assets. And it's always, quite frankly, it's always a lot easier to be the owner than to be selling to the owner. So back to that question, I probably would like to be sort of in the same boat, both hard and and technology. Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate and advisory firms in the country. You start the
1: communities. Our ideas and capital make them possible. And tune in to the Walker webcast hosted by CEO Willie Walker for exclusive insights on commercial real estate. In the book, you talk about differentiation. And one of the areas that you talk about differentiation is on data. But it, it, it feels like in our industry, a lot of people either say, I'm going to differentiate at the asset level. So that's going to be either it's going to be better amenities, it's going to be better management, it's going to be a better unit layout, whatever the case might be. But they try and differentiate at the asset level, and then there are also people who differentiate on the data side of things. Of why are they buying a certain asset? And it's sort of a, a data-driven investment thesis, if you will. I, I guess the, the the core question I have for you is a which is more which is more challenging or difficult and then B, which has greater returns because you've done both?
0: So the first thing first is I, I believe strongly, and this is really what the book is about, is that in many cases, the, the real estate owner and operator takes it from a bottom-up approach, right? We look at our properties and every year we do our budgets. We look at each individual thing. We look at occupancy and we don't think about the company as a whole, the operating company. And in the book, I'm challenging people and I'm giving them a framework to take a top-down approach because I think by taking a top-down approach is really the only way that you're going to create alpha in the entire organization because it's the things that you have to do at an organizational level that is going to provide real impact to the property and and to all of your investments. So for example, we talk about leadership and we talk about data and we talk about innovation and employees and, and OKRs and all of these things. These are corporate levels in order for you to really maximize and create alpha at the asset and entity level. So back to your question, so which one's harder? Which one's harder and which one has better returns? I, I think clearly having it at an organizational level will have the clearer returns because you're solving the problem and you're flowing it down as opposed to looking at individual assets and 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 trying to build them up. I, I just... It's a very hard way to, to operate a business. And, and if you look at a lot of the organizations, a lot of businesses, and, 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 you know, you and I have been very blessed these last years where part of our job is to go out and meet customers, right? We we get to meet people, right? And, and we get to meet, um, you know, we get to advise people, but we get to listen to them and we get to listen to their stories and really understand their organizations. And if you look at some of these organizations, I mean, we can walk into them and we know that's really smart. That's that's actually that's creative. That's different. And and by doing that, I think you can look at those ones that do it at an organizational level. They're creating the Ocaras at an organizational level. They're 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 data forward, they're innovative forward, their leadership is there. Those are the companies that quite frankly I want to invest with. And quite frankly, you can see are are outperforming the market. So Talk about
1: data a little bit further, though, because in the book you talk about a PWC study that says that those companies that are, if you will, data informed, use data, um, are three times better at decision making than those that don't. Um, I think a lot of people get tripped up a little bit in am I using data? Like, Like a lot of people think that they make really good decisions. So they can't sit there and say, I'm going to get three X better decisions by investing in this data strategy. Whereas I think a lot of people also look at data of, unless it's going to make money for me, unless I can go sell that data, unless it creates some new revenue stream for me, why am I going to invest in it? It Help for a moment, Rob, talk about like, if you will, baby steps before you go to big leaps, because you've gone all in on data. You've created companies around data and commercialized data, but very few people who are on the operating side of the business are sitting there saying, I own assets and I'm going to create some offshoot data company that I'm going to monetize. And without that as a prospect, they then may not invest in a data strategy.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, let's, let's take it, let's separate it first. Let's talk about data and then let's talk about innovation, right? Because I think we, we use them sort of interchangeably and I, I probably incorrectly so do that in the book, right? Because I, I believe they're, they're separate Data, think about data. Everybody has data. And I, I use this analogy, and especially for you, because you're, you know, everybody who knows you knows that you're this, this, you know, tremendous athlete, right? You're you're riding and running. Think about data like oxygen, right? And think about the way that we consume data as your lungs, right? Your lungs are, are very trained. They're they're you know, they're they're powerful. You can ingest oxygen and use it better than somebody like me, who doesn't do the biking and the running and all the stuff that you do. And I think that's the way that people need to look at at these organizations, that they have data all around them. They do make decisions off of data. But to effectively have a strategy around data doesn't necessarily involve a huge undertaking, a huge investment in a data strategy. So to, to be clear on that point is, you make decisions that are based upon either artificial intelligence, business intelligence, or human intelligence, right? You're using some component of of data to make those decisions. It's where on the spectrum do you want to be to make those those decisions? How comfortable do you want to be making those decisions? Why do you think back in, you know, when I first wanted to go on Wall Street back in the 80s and you watched early, you know, early uh, programs where the Bloomberg Terminal hadn't quite existed, right? So you still had runners. Like, you know, I, I was applying for jobs where I wanted to be a trader and guys were on the phone, you know, and they would sit there and they'd be calling down to their desk and they'd be, you know, and these runners are doing this stuff. Nowadays, you go to a trading floor and there's guys with 35 screens up in front of them because it's data. Could you imagine if you wanted to go into an investment with somebody and said, hey, you know what? This guy's looking, this guy's still on a, yeah, you know, using his red marker and and doesn't use any data sources whatsoever, versus, oh, I want to go to somebody who actually uses data and looks at stuff. Even Peter Litman, he, he, he was on your show a little while ago. He's like, yeah, you know, why didn't people see this happening? He's like, because people weren't looking at data, right? I mean, it's it's data is around us. It's critical. You can consume it. You can use the data to the way you want to, but be advised, you're not using data. You're going to be out of business. I, I don't care which blockbuster. You know, it's like, look at data. People want streaming. No, people want to come to the store. They people want to guess if, they're, if the video's there, right? You can go through all these examples. So to your earlier question, like, hey, be left behind. Now in particular, is a true, a, 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 a an absolute visualization of those who know what they're doing and those who don't know what they're doing. Because the market is is the way it is. So go back to when
1: you were building trader tool and the opportunity to buy tableau. Because I think that in the book you describe why you didn't buy Tableau. And I think it's very applicable, if you will, to what you just said as it relates to the use of data.
0: Yep. Well, so that once again, it comes down to the the usage of data. Data it is this anomaly right and I think um, unfortunately we all get trapped of it and and I did that that story about Tableau and for those who haven't read the book yet, it's it was basically we had this big data warehouse I wanted to take this data and apply it to other things of uh, that I have. and so I bought this this business intelligence tool which is going to synthesize all this data and and make give me great decision making capabilities. unfortunately, data if it, it's not organized is useless right it's just it's just scrambled stuff and no matter what kind of technology you add ai bi whatever without having structured data you can't you, you won't be able to enjoy the benefits of having these data data driven decisions and that's why i come back in the book i'm like look don't you don't want to have a huge data warehouse that's fine don't worry about it but you need to start somewhere and understanding the data that you have, that you've created is an asset because you're going to be comparing yourself to people who are using data, who are making decisions off of data. And when someone's, let's just say that somebody,
1: A, hasn't written the book and B, doesn't really have a data strategy in place today, um, talk for a moment about the operating data OKRs, KPIs, things of that nature, which make people better at running their business and making decisions versus um, I'm going to use this data to be a more um, savvy investor. Um, I'm going to find value where others can't find value or go to the ultimate, which is I'm going to commercialize this data and actually make money off of it. But talk about if you're sitting there right now saying I've got to create a data strategy, which one of those three, if you will, areas would you first invest in? How does somebody kind of frame it to get moving on it.
0: So, I think the first thing, most important thing, right? This all starts at the top. An organization's decision to become more innovative and data-centric has to start at the top, right? So, um th- and let's let's get the the third one out of the way, right? If you have this idea that you are going to create a data platform and you're going to be able to monetize that data platform, go spend your time go go do something else. I I promise you I promise you, you are better off. Go buy a boat. Go, uh, Quite frankly, you go buy a big plane, you go buy a big boat because that's what you're going to spend in order to go do that. So, you figure out what you want. Um, So, look at the two in between then, right? It's the first one was, hey, do I start this data strategy or how do I start this data strategy and then what do I do with it? And I think that comes down to the first part, leadership, understanding and the direction. And that comes down to these OKRs, right? What do you really want to do in your organization? Where do you set your north star? Where do you set your goals, and, and where do you want to be as a company? And where is the leader going to take you to that company? And the data strategy is around that direction. So, to me, a a a company without a data plan or without OKRs, okay without strategy, is basically leaderless, and and really not is is going to be out of business or not going to is it's not going to create health.
1: And is there any size or scale, Rob, that one has to be to create a data strategy? I One of the things I thought was really interesting in one of the suggestions in the book was that you suggest that in senior management of any firm, you have two sort of new people in that senior executive uh, uh, ranks, which is one is someone who is managing data or a data manager, and the other one is a client engagement leader. Talk about those two ads that a lot of org charts, quite honestly, don't have today.
0: Yeah. Well, you can go through almost any uh, commercial real estate organization. You go look at the org chart, right? And it's going to be at your head guy, and then you've got your acquisitions, you've got your uh, operations, and you've got your finance. The two positions that we talk about adding is really data for data strategy and somebody who's engagement um, and really understanding your customer um, because that's just as important for the organization for long-term value. If you get to to the data side, having somebody there who is focused, and it doesn't need to be their full-time job, right? So if, if you're a smaller organization, focus on what you can achieve with the dollars that you have, right? So, yeah, you don't you know, have a sidebar in the book. You don't need a data scientist, right? A, somebody says, yeah, I need a data scientist, you don't. You need somebody who's going to be able to collect, and maybe you're early on, and you collect data, and you visualize it through Excel, you collect data, but understanding that there's there's value there, as you go along the spectrum, as your company size grows, and as the return that you want to have, your investment will have to be big. Ultimately, you're going to need to have a database. You're going to need to have a centralized place for data. You're going to need to have tools to be able to visualize and analyze that data. And you're going to have tools that are going to be able to make sure that that data stays fresh and current. Those are investments, absolutely, but I guarantee you that those investments will pale in comparison to the return that you're going to get in increase in value and increase in in not only value of the assets, but increase in value in the asset value, or sorry, your enterprise value and the way that your investors and other people are going to see you.
1: So AI is obviously a, a big issue today. Um, I listened to an interview with Mark Benioff last night on CNBC talking about Salesforce and what Salesforce is doing to compete with Microsoft and others in AI. Um, There are a lot of people who sort of say, I don't really know what to do there. Do I have to invest? I mean, if you want to build your own AI tools, good luck competing against Microsoft. Um, And at the same time, to sit around and wait for an off-the-shelf tool from a Microsoft that allows you to actually manipulate your data and use AI is something that a lot of people are sort of saying, do I jump in? Do I stay out? What do I do? So at this point where the technology is still being developed um, and where there is so much focus on it and people sort of feel like if I'm not doing something there, I'm getting left behind. But at the same time, the dollars to actually play in that space are so big. What do you suggest people do at this point in time as it relates to AI?
0: Well, I think there's AI is a buzzword, right? Just like uh, years ago, there was BI, right? And so it's so it's interesting. It's it's to put this to an analogy. Um, I've bought. I'm i a local. You know, I'm, a, I'm a local developer here in Charlotte. I've bought a couple single family homes that I rent. Um, you know what? I think I'm going to go buy. I'm going to go compete against Graystar and and I'm going to go start buying. You know, I'm going to go raise a, a five billion dollar fund, and I'm going to just I'm just going to go and buy and, and operate. 300-unit Class A multis in, in urban core. Well, that's a big jump, right? You've, you've missed the steps along the way. So I've gone from a little single family, a couple of single-family home rentals to a big scale. That's sort of what that, that discussion is, right? So AI, there's a couple of parts. One, um, if you don't understand AI and you don't understand chat, GPT, and understand sort of the benefit of it, you should um, because it's going to be incredibly impactful um, and is impactful now if you think it's going to change make you smarter and do better things in your business that's not going to happen right now so what you need to think about as as an organization if you think about the 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 data cycle the way that we believe in data and the way I believe in in the data cycle is if you take on a high level you have artificial intelligence AI you have business intelligence, BI, and then you have human intelligence, each, right? And so each one of those platforms make a data and intelligence strategy capable. Right now, there's the availability for people to have BI and uh, HI, but it comes back to the same thing. You need to have, at first, you need to have the data in order for you to make any decision before you can even have BI or even HI. You still need to have the data. And that's sort of the, that's the biggest part. That's the biggest challenge that that I've had in in my job. I mean, the last few years, as we've started to talk about more data strategy to organizations, it, you know, resell data warehouses. Anyways, I okay, can't, we make a commercial real estate data warehouse and we go to people and they're like, why do I need this? I don't need this. I don't need this. It reminds me a lot of uh, 2015, when I started a company called IMS, Investor Management Services. This was when the JOBS Act just came out and people were like, hey, now retail investors can get into syndicating and and, uh, people can now syndicate to retail investors and have these retail investors. So we started this software to help real estate owners manage retail investors. I went around the country talking about this to, to our clients and the majority of them said, why would I want retail investors? Oh, they're a pain in the ass. Sorry, excuse my language. They're a pain. Why do I want them? No, they always want data. They always want this stuff and all that. And, and all of those companies now have turned around seven years later. Are like, how do I get retail investors? Right? They they have, they have gone in and said, oh, now I really want these retail investors because the institutional investors have have dried up or they've gone after different things or it's too competitive or their deal structure." It's the same approach now. You need to be thinking to be innovative. You need to be forward-looking. If you want to create alpha in your organization, you need to look beyond the building, beyond around the corner, and you need to look at data as a true asset, one of the biggest assets that you have. So you mentioned
1: just two amazing firms, Graystar and Cortland, as you were talking about going from owning a couple of, single family rental properties to actually owning a big apartment building. And um, without saying, you said sort of good luck competing with those two behemoths because they've got more data and more scale than someone who's just converting from being a small player. One of the things, Rob, that I think a lot of our clients struggle with is that the BI, the business intelligence data set is somewhat ubiquitous and somewhat, uh, well, it's everyone can access it. Everyone can go by CoStar data. Everyone can go by TREP data. Everyone can go, and I'm leaving some people out of there, but they can go by, you know, they can use Yardy to manage their rents. The, the competitive landscape as it relates to business intelligence of third-party data, which those data providers obviously have access to more data streams than anybody else, maybe the BREAT. And GrayStar have as much access to data as a CoStar or a, or, or a Trep does, but the point being is that most people are using the same business intelligence feeds to make those business decisions, and therefore, how do you create Alpha when everyone's getting data from essentially the same sources?
0: So, first of all, I would challenge you. I think the the sources that you mentioned, I think if you look at their uh, of the the customer base of those organizations probably the majority of them are on the acquisition side and on the uh you know sort of acquisition and um you know or origination side. How many of those organizations actually take their own operating data and compare and benchmark their own operating data and trend and forecast triage and activate and work with inside their own data? And I think you would find that the, that number is much smaller because it's not as easy to take your own data and organize it, standardize it on a, on a daily, monthly basis. It's a lot easier to go and have your analyst go do a CoStar report or do a Yardy Matrix reporting and give me these 10 properties in this market. And that's where the challenge is. It is not easy to create your own data strategy. It's not the hardest thing in the world, but it is critical. And so... I come back to that. It's A lot of these organizations, with the exception of the two that we just mentioned, Raystar, Cortland, I know for a fact, take their own data and manage their own data first, then make decisions based upon other data sources, right? Because once you start getting, and and you talked about just CoStar, that's just real estate data. What about census data? What about traffic? What about Wi-Fi data? What about cell phone data? Like All the other stuff that comes into it is going to create incredibly powerful analysis. But quite frankly, we're still in the dark ages where we can, hey, you know what? I've got an analyst. I get my monthly, I get my weekly traffic reports coming in. Okay, so I get it in from this report and this report and this report. So I'm going to go make my analyst go down and cut and paste from my property management reports. I'm going to cut and paste them, put them together, and then I'm going to look at them. Well, that's what we're doing right now. We're not taking advantage of the technology to take that data in one place, be able to visualize it, be able to forecast it, and quite frankly, be able to use it in different scenarios. And and so being able to benchmark your properties next to other properties will tell you right off the bat, to thine own self be true, is it me or the market? Right? A lot of people are coming in. Florida. Oh, geez, Florida's horrible because my insurance is this and this and I can't do it. Well, wait a second. Have you really benchmarked your property next to the five other properties in your market and realized that actually not only is your insurance, you know, maybe the same as yours, but maybe your repairs and maintenance is, is a lot higher than theirs. Maybe your payroll cost is double theirs. Maybe your management fee is double. Like that's being able to really try and drill and find value in the data.
1: So I hear that. And as someone who's scaled a small family-owned company, with the concept of ever competing against a CBRE or JLL was just a pipe dream 20 years ago. To now competing with them every single day, um, I know what it's like to sit there and sort of say, "Well, they've got big brands, and they've got lots of people, and they've got access to data, and they they have the ability to invest in marketing in ways that we never ever would." So, I guess my question to you, Rob, is: We've talked about these big companies that have lots of data flow; they have lots of assets to pull that data from. If I own five assets, in Southern California and I'm thinking about either moving to Northern California and buying some assets there, or, you know, jumping over to Arizona and acquire there, you know, how do you, how do you make that, that bridge without just going and using the commoditized data that, which you've very clearly said, if you just have your analyst pulling that data from those sources, everyone else is. So how do you, how do you create alpha there? How do you
0: differentiate if
1: you don't have the data feeds that a Cortland or a Graystar have?
0: Sure. So, and so let's go back and let's, 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 Let's take this a little bit deeper, right? You're talking about acquisitions, right? And acquisitions, we saw in the last few years, right? Acquisitions, hey, do I go to this market and do I buy? Well, quite frankly, you didn't need data for that market was so so great and wonderful. You, you didn't need what? What data would you need? Hey, I'm going to go to this market and I know that I'm going to I'm going to put a couple new sinks in it and and uh, fix up you know some some paint and I'm going to be able to make my money. Well, guess what? When the market is like it is right now, where interest rates are driving in. And by the way, hoping and waiting for interest rates to drop is not a legitimate strategy, right? That is not a good strategy. That will be a strategy which is going to put you out of business very quickly. Um, So I look at this as creating alpha is not hoping that the interest rate market is, right? Creating alpha is being able to look at markets and look at financial markets and and knowing that I'm properly optimizing my debt, but hoping that rates are going to change is not it. But looking at your operations, am I as a company, are we set up to succeed? Do we have the right leadership in place? Do we have the right direction in place? Do we believe in the same thing, right? Do we believe in data and innovation? Do we believe, do we have the right people on the bus? Do we have, do we understand our customers? That's where this is all about. Forget buying and selling. That's, a, that's an acquisition thing. I want people to own properties who can't sell them right now because they're underwater or people who don't want to buy because they can't understand the market. I want those people to look and say, wait a second, I've got a business here. This is, you know, for, for anybody who's an operations or asset manager, you know, this is, this is our time to rejoice. We, we are now the darling childs of, of the real estate shop, not the acquisition people. And it's it's up to the decisions and the operations within an organization, which are going to either save or crush the organizations that bought properties in the last few years.
1: So you you mentioned leadership there, Rob, and um, chapter two in your book is all about leadership. Talk for a moment to leaders as it relates to how to either build the business strategy or all of those operating, I mean, there's both metrics as it relates to OKRs and KPIs and all that kind of stuff. There's vision. You, you go into quite some detail as it relates to the, if you will, the leadership to get you to exactly what you just talked about.
0: Yep. So it always starts with leadership, right? I mean, especially in these organizations, right? I think if you look at most organizations, most real estate shops, it is quite frankly, it's it's the head guy, right? It's the CEO. They're the name on the door. Or they're the one, and maybe it's their partner where they are really the direction and they set the pulse for the entire organization. And that direction needs to resonate. They The understanding of what that direction is needs to resonate through the whole entire organization. And so to me, without starting at leadership, everything else is a waste of time, right? If, if I just want to be in this business for, you know what, I just want to I want to be in here for a year, and I want to be done, I want to do a couple of deals, and that's it, that's fine. That's your direction, that's your organization. But if you as a leader want to build a business to create enterprise value, to build and scale and do all these other things, then you need to have the organization understanding exactly what the goal and the direction is. And that's why leadership is, is quite frankly, so important. And it's the leader that is, honestly, is, is responsible, especially in these organizations. They're responsible for the make a break of all.
1: So, in the book, you quote Sandeep Mithrani, who went in to try and turn around WeWork, uh, yeah. ended up leading. Uh, but in, the quote you use is, resistance to change is caused by arrogance and a lack of properly placed fear. Um, as I read that quote, Rob, which is a I think a very good quote. I sat there and said, Yeah, but Sandeep was in a company that was literally faced with the fear of going out of business and still couldn't get the adoption of the people into a new way of thinking. So he, here's the forget about his power of persuasion to turn the people around. The actual company was faced with the prospect of bankruptcy and he still couldn't get that resistance to change out of someone like WeWork. So help me for a moment as someone sitting there saying, Okay, I run an organization. I run a group right now. I've just heard what Rob has said. I've got to lead it. I got to set a data strategy. I got to figure out who my customer is and how we're going to satisfy that customer in ways that nobody else does, either at an asset level or even in your acquisition strategy level um, or investor level. What's the what, what? What's the
0: impetus to change? So that really comes out. So so first of all, you know, When you think about you know, when you think about. We work for example um we're talking about Innovation right they took a business model that's been around for a while and they made it they they changed the dynamic so and quite frankly if you look at the office market right now I'd probably much rather be in temporary space than owning big office buildings so you know being there was 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 it was probably the right direction but to go back to him facing change every organization and it as they get larger the resistance to change becomes Harder. And I think with these these organizations in, in particular, setting the change, it's easy to do the things you've done before. It's always easy, right? I get my stuff. This this is what I do. I use this system. I do this. I do this. It's absolutely hard to change. Understand that. As a, as a as a entrepreneurial business, we're changing all the time, and we have to we have to embrace that change without having set clear direction and without having buy-in. And that's what a lot of these OKRs do. And you know, sort of that that process of getting everybody bought in and aligned, that helps with that change. And you're not going to help change, you're not going to change everybody. And those people, unfortunately, you have to decide, is it worth the business or is it worth that person? And you have to make those, you have to make those changes. And that's hard. That's really hard to do because you might have the, the person you helped you get to this point could be that director of operations who's been with you for 15 years and they know exactly how to run that property, but they won't think outside the box. And that unfortunately is a very hard decision. Do you want to change your organization, go to the next level, or do you want to keep on doing the things that you've done in the past? I think you just have to look. You just have to look and say, Hey, do I want to be like Kodak? Right? Do I want to be like, Hey, all these other groups, you don't have to look at it. And you know, it's interesting though, Willie, you know, it, you mentioned something, it's, it's, you know, about Walker Dunlop, right? You, you started out at, at a certain point, you started when it was, you know, uh, 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 admittedly a smaller business, right? It was, it was a, you know, a regional player, great shop, but nothing to where you are right now. If you look at the things that were suggesting, right? Data and innovation, do you use data and innovation in your organization? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do, yeah. Do you plan? And do you use uh, I don't know if you use OKRs. I think maybe you, you do, but do you use OKRs? Yep. Yeah. And do you, leadership, we've already talked about it, right? I think you're, yeah, you know, I'm already on here, so I don't need to say it anymore, but you're a great leader, right? And and you are mentioned in the book as, as being a great leader, right? Employees, do you have, do you train, do you embrace your employees, right? Um, do you do you motivate them and educate them? And do you have people in positions that maybe other shops don't? Yeah. Yep. You know, and then finally customers. Do you know who all your customers are? Now I'm not talking about individual who I I know, I know we know customers, but your customers, right? You have stockholders, you have boards, you have this group, and you have this group and this group. So you know your customers. And and these are the, the pinnacles of companies that go from here to here because they apply this framework that's not not rocket science. It's just a, it's just executing on a plan. So, you, yeah, that, just,
1: yeah. Just one thing. So, one of the things in the customer focus because you just talked about me knowing our customers and 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 really satisfying your customers, understanding what your customer needs are, and having a data strategy that fits into that. You talk in the book about customer segmentation and creating customer personas. What do you mean by creating a customer persona?
0: So the first thing I do on all of these is who is your customer, right? I, I go into these companies all the time and I'm like, who's your customer? I'm like, oh, and you might hear, oh, my, my tenants are my customer from, from this person, right? Or or you might hear, you know, my investors are my customer from this person. Or Bottom line is, they are all your customers. And in fact, the value of all your customers, I equate to that's your enterprise value because that is the company value because and, and your customers are actually anybody and everyone that touches your organization from your employees to your tenants, your residents, your your uh, advisors, your investors, your lenders, your attorneys. All of these people have an impact on the way that you do your business or, more importantly, succeed. So what we suggest is that you take a a strong look at who, one, who is your customer, and then specifically understand the persona of who this customer is. So you're an investor. And you might have multiple personas, right? If you're a commercial real estate shop and you're a syndicator or a private equity firm, you have different personas, right? I have a family office that I have to go after. I go after doctors. I I go after lawyers. I, I go after institutional investors. Whatever it is, you can build a persona. Who is that person that you're dealing with? And most importantly, what are their wants, their needs, and their fears. And if you can understand their wants, their needs, their fears, then you can provide the solution to those, those needs and wants and fears. And that will just make your life a heck of a lot easier. So if you know that you're probably, if you know that you're family office investor, right, what do they want? You know, they want great reporting, transparency, all that other stuff. Um, You know, what are, what are their, um, you know, what are their wants? They want decent returns, but they want this other stuff. What are their fears? They don't want their money stolen, right? They don't want Bernie made off. They don't want that. So what do you do when you pitch them, right? And this is, you know, we talk about this with, with uh, you know, what I thought was a typical pitch book for, for investors, which was, hey, here are all these great pictures. Here's all this great stuff. Here's all this great narrative in this, this offering memorandum that, by the way, Most investors don't read, but I'm going to put in really nice pictures and and really nice breasts. But in reality, you're not speaking to that investor. You're not speaking to them. What's your fear? Okay, your fear is, is losing money. Okay, well, let's talk about our transparency. Let's talk about the way that we are completely open. Look about our reporting. Look about our this and this, and here's our references. So it's all about just understanding who your customer is and being able to message to them and engage them appropriately. And one of the things I thought was interesting though, Rob, is you take that
1: about creating personas and then you say, and then roll that into your brand messaging, your brand strategy. The The challenge I see in that is just as you said, there are different brand messages for different customers. So if I say one thing is it relates to, let's just say hypothetically, I said, it's all about shareholder returns at Walker Nellop. Well, I know that there's some mutual fund that owns Walker Nellop stock that is thrilled by hearing that it's all about shareholder returns. I also may have an employee at Walker Dunlop who says, hang on a second, I want it to be about me. I want it to be about me as an employee at Walker Dunlop. And so how do you consult companies to make sure that the brand messages that comes out of the customer personas keep you, if you will, headed towards true north, which is what the company actually stands for overall?
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's obviously a skill set, right? That's, that's a, you know, that's that brand person who is well outside my, my skill set. It does happen. These companies do this, right? I mean, if you look at hotels have done a great job, right? They might have multiple brands because they have different segments, right? You have um, retail, right? Consumer goods, right? You have all of these different examples of this. But ultimately, you can frame an organization, right? Back to that point. Yes, shareholder return. Well, guess what? A good way to shareholder return is happy employees, right? Low turnover. High, you know, high employee scores, high, you know, high employee promoter scores, um, best places to work, people wanting to work here, right? That drives value. So having, if if I invested in a company and they said, geez, I want to do, I want to create shareholder value by creating the the best place to work and the best customer service or whatever it is, that makes sense. Because smart enough to realize that they all have to work together. Back to my original point, your your enterprise value is your customer value, and your customers are everybody in the organization.
1: So you wrote an article recently for Entrepreneur Magazine titled, uh, Every Business Owner Needs an Exit Plan, It's Time to Develop Yours. Um, talk for a moment about why every business owner needs to have an exit plan today rather than when they turn 65.
0: Right. Well, yeah. One, it's it. And and yeah, because they might not retire at sixty-five, right? They want to stay on. It's it's about knowing. Unfortunately, our politics in America don't have forced retirement
1: ages at sixty-five, but that's Sorry. another commentary.
0: But I, I think in this case, Willie, a lot of times I, I just understanding the psyche, right? Of of and and as I said, you and I get to spend a lot of time with these these CEOs, these people that run these real estate organizations, and you and you think about what they're looking for, right? There's a point where. What am I doing this for, right? Am I doing this for my current lifestyle or am I doing this to really create something that I want to pass on to generations? And I think by understanding your exit plan sort of helps you set that direction of long-term planning and long-term goals. And I think by doing that, it sort of gives you, first, it gives you an idea of, of you know where you want to go, but also it helps the organization know where you want to go. And it helps you pick people. right? I, if I had a person where I said, you know what, I'm going to retire in five years and I'm going to be done. Well, the people I hire are probably going to be ones that want to take that role after I retire. Right. It's not I'm not going to hire the people that want long term stable jobs. They don't want to be in the top spot. They, Yeah. You know, so it's about finding the right people then to help you with that mission of exit
1: and you also recently wrote an article as it relates to back to office and how to both get people back into the office and then retain employees um talk for a moment about that and i want to i want to take that into office because there was a big article in 60 minutes last week that uh, was talking all about new york office and whether it ever comes back i want to get into the specifics of that in a second but for a moment talk about the the four if you will uh, themes that you put into that article as it relates to what it is to create a vibrant work environment that makes it so people want to come back into the office?
0: Well, let's go right back to our our customers, right? Know your customers, right? Knowing your employees. And I think that's the first thing is is knowing your employees and what are they looking for? What makes them engaged? I think we're also going through this this transformational shift of this hybrid, which I think is going to become the new norm, right? I think a lot of the employees want to go back, they want to have a place to work. They want to have some, some, some interactions, but then they also want to have the flexibility and freedom to go to do whatever they want to do. And, you know, have their side hustle and do all that kind of stuff. So I think there's, there's setting the level of one, make it flexible for them, make it engaging and exciting for them. Um, Make it accessible to them. Um, and then in some cases reward them for being there and and following through I, I think it's I, I think there's more of a a challenge for us as an organization to manage disperse groups right that's become that's where the challenges really come because in, in you know the old days when I started commercial defeasance, it was you know like right, four guys in a room right woke up Told them exactly what to do. I could hear all their phone calls. I could do all this stuff. And, you know, and 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 that's the way we operate. Nowadays, I have people in Brazil. I have people in California. I have people all over the country like you do. And being able to manage them through technology and through innovation and products that that help you um sort of manage that business, that's what it's all about. And by the way, that does not can keep on coming back and belabor this this data strategy. Without consistent data flowing through the organization, you're you're never going to be successful. If you all are working on the same sheet of paper, same data, same information, you might as well forget about it as well. Keep everybody in that little room.
1: So when you think about back to office, I saw that in that, well, Scott Reschler of RxR did that 60 Minutes piece and sat there and said, you know, things are challenging. And I can't remember what the number was of what how much square footage RxR has in New York, but it's big. Um, and then this week, it comes out that uh, uh, Scott and RxR are going into a – they're raising a fund with Aries to go buy office in, in in New York. So, a little bit of a, of, if you will, a, a countercyclical play. What's right. your take on office today and whether that's a place to be poking around for opportunity or to stay away because the data tells you that we're not getting back to the office and leases aren't going to be signed?
0: Yeah. Office is, is a challenge, right? I think, you know, that is um, – I don't think anybody I think a lot of people could have forecasted interest rate movements. Um and, and I think the yeah you know, people did do that. Not everybody obviously, but you know, those are things that you can sort of understand and forecast. COVID, I don't think that's one of those anomalies that just that how does that happen? Um and so for office players and this dynamic shift, um office, I think. Once again, I can't make generalities. I can't make general statements. I think there are opportunities in every asset, every asset class, every, every structure, every situation. There are always opportunities if you have the foundation to execute on them, right? If you can execute with it, you can you can survive. And as long as you have that execution plan in place. Office is a big one. I that it scares me, right? It it is, I think, um, I like certain suburban office. I like certain suburban markets, but I'd be petrified to start buying class B office buildings in New York. Then again, I probably would have never bought class B or class A office buildings in New York, but um, you know, we owned, we owned a bunch of office. At one point we had almost a million square feet of office in uh, the Northeast and and a little bit of the Southeast. Fortunately we sold it, um, you know, some before COVID, some after COVID, um, or repositioned some of it afterwards, but it's a, it's a, it's a very different animal. So I think for, for office, I think in certain markets, um, absolute, but it's a, it's a, that's a tough one. Looking at those buildings behind you, I can almost, I can almost see through them. Right. And so, um, I'm not, just- not
1: quite, not quite. I think actually those two buildings behind me might actually be full, but there's, there's plenty of, uh, there, there's plenty of distress in the downtown Denver uh, office space. But I mean, interestingly, the, the, a very big law firm just re-signed a lease at a building here in Denver called the Cash Register Building. And it sort of defies, because it's sort of a, a, a B building and um, it defies what everyone's saying of, you know, big law firms need class A space. And um, that article in 60 Minutes had one Vanderbilt is sort of, you know, everyone's going for that A triple plus building. And fortunately, Walker and Delops, New York headquarters are in one Vanderbilt and are. Everyone on our team loves being there. Um, there's very much that play of more class A space. Um, but to your point, the B's and the C's is the real question mark. And what do you do with it? And do you convert it? Uh, or do we get job growth that makes it so that, you know, people can't afford to pay what you would pay to be in Wonder Vanderbilt. And therefore, they're forced to go to a, a B or C class building. But yep. TBD on, on data, Robin, we're, we're almost out of time here. Um, as you look at the data today on multi, what's it telling you as it relates to the opportunities? And I and I asked that question with a very clear understanding, and I am completely in agreement with you. People make these big broad brush statements as it relates to either population isn't growing fast enough to keep up with the amount of supply or whatever. And those big macro trends aren't what tell you whether buying an asset at the corner of Maine and Maine in Columbus, Ohio is a smart investment or a bad investment. And so staying at the macro and not at the micro is a, is a, is, a, is a very dangerous. But as you sit there today and look at the dynamics and multi, what's telling you is this sort of the opportunity as it relates to either region, asset class, um, Deals that are coming out of lease up and are going to be caught with a construction loan that they can't get out of because it's only lease 60% and they can't get permanent financing. What's what's that opportunity set you're looking at right now?
0: So I think the first thing first is, you know, go back to that, that say to thine own self be true. Am I a really good operator? And I think without understanding that, the acquisition is the acquisition, right? I mean, acquisition horizons are acquisition horizons, right? I can, I think I'm the smartest guy in the world because I bought. You know, a bunch of multis in 2009, 10, 11, and 12, right? I'm the smartest guy around. But, but that's not the case. It is, you have to understand, can you operate these properties proficiently and create value? Do you understand debt strategies in order to put the appropriate leverage based upon the received cash flows going forward? Are those the things that you're good at? And, and if you, if you can answer that first, then you start the next step, which is, okay, what markets do I look at? And what strategies? I mean, quite frankly, I think the I think the weather, I think the insurance, I think there's there's so many headwinds that are coming into this market. But I think that makes it just even more exciting. I think that's where, if you can answer the first question, are you a really good operator, and really prove it, right? And there's ways to prove it. You can benchmark yourself against other properties in the market in terms of actual performance, and figure out if you are better. If you are better. Then, then go and look at these markets that are showing some job growth, where people want to live, where it's affordable, right? I mean, that's that's our biggest problem, quite frankly. Multi, it's affordability. Can't afford to live in these these major metropolitan areas. You can't. So, so that's why kids are staying at home, or they're they're living with each other. They're yeah, they're they're not moving out. The, so, there are plenty of opportunities. I think if you're if you're structured, you want to do preferred equity, like these rescue capital. There's there's a lot of ways. To make money in this market, it's just be smart about it and have a plan and an infrastructure in order to execute on it. Otherwise, it's a waste. Because if you're just dreaming like you were the last five years or so, you're in the wrong business.
1: So, I I, I have to tell you, I've i loved every minute of this conversation. I think as I just ask you that question, I think one of the reasons that you are so successful is that. A lot of people, it, it reminds me of business school, Rob, where nobody really wanted to go to the HR class. Like we had classes on human resources and how to manage people and everyone's like, oh God, I'm going to go s- snooze through that because they want to go to like the finance class or the m a class because it's like, it's sexy and it's big. And as long as the model says, buy it, you go buy it, right? And you keep going back to, to if if your strategy is to wait for interest rates to come down, you're going to miss this window of actually Creating value long term, and Lineman said it when we were together three weeks ago. He said, "You know, look that that's not a that's not an investment strategy." And by the way, on a seven year or a ten year hole or a thirty year hole, you're literally not going to look back and said, "I wish I'd waited for twenty five more basis points of cuts in the ten year before I went and put long term fixed rate financing on it." Um, and so. I just I'm super appreciative of as I give you something to sort of say, talk to me about some big macro trend. You like Southeast job growth or this or that, that you go back to the nuts and bolts of actually operating a business every single day. And if you're good at doing that on an asset basis, you have the platform upon which to scale.
0: Yes. As long as you have the platform. So back to that point. Yes. As long as you have the infrastructure, like the company, the company, I want people to start thinking top down. If my organization is... Data driven strategy, innovative, has good leadership, has good planning, has good people, has all you know, all of that stuff, then I can take on any challenge. I can see the opportunity. If we believe in the opportunity and we run through our models and we look at the information, we can make a lot of these strategies. The the the, the work, the odds are in our favor. If you just go out and say, Oh, you know what? Hey, great Oh, LA, guys are unloading properties at LA. Oh, I'm gonna go over to LA and start buying stuff. Oh. Well, I'll lose my money. I just might as well, as I said, go buy something else. Have a good strategy. Make sure that you know what you're doing. Have the infrastructure in place. Then you can go and develop the strategy of what you're good at.
1: Rob, uh, the book is Beyond the Building. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Rob, thank you. You're fantastic. Um, congrats on all your success. And congrats on the book because it's an incredibly well-written book. And I would strongly recommend it to anyone who thinks that our conversation today has been any way impactful on the way they think about their business, their career, uh, or the overall commercial real estate markets. Thanks, Rob. Great. Thanks, Willie. Have a great day.
0: You too.